starting May 1st and running through August 31st. Monster Island will host a special exhibit highlighting some of the West's most bizarre creatures. Headlighting the event will be Pennsylvania's own The Blob. Tickets go on sale this Thursday, April 14th at 9 a.m. For more information, please visit the Monster Island Resource Center where you can talk with one of our wonderful tourism representatives. You don't want to miss this opportunity to see the goo. Creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor. Right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob. Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara. This is The Monster Island Film Vault, episode 62, Eric Anderson versus The Blob, 1958. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to The Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, Monster Island's film curator, Nate Marchand. And today, oh boy, we've got a fun one today. Yes, Jimmy, if we're going to be talking about the, I guess you could say the most kaiju of kaijus, because kaiju literally means strange beast, and we are talking about quite a strange one. And I don't mean my guest today, although he's a strange one too. It's been a little while since he's been here, but with me today is the founder of Nerd Chapel and my co-author for the 42 book series, Eric Mr. Anderson. Hey. Welcome back, Mr. Anderson. Yes. Yes. We missed you. <laughs> you know, it was a crazy trip once again. I was up on the data list. And they decided to beat me down for some nice R&R. Oh, no. More teleporters. Yes. Well, they beamed me to China, which is fine. I like China. Oh. (laughs) What part of China? (laughs) I hope it wasn't Uh, Shanghai. Shanghai is very unhappy right now. (laughs) No, it was not Shanghai. They beamed me down to Beijing, and all I hear at first is, Welcome to China. I eat you. What? (laughs) And I looked over, and there's a, a Chinaman... And an Egyptian arguing over which country is better. Oh, no. And, you know, the Egyptians are, you eat, you eat anything in China. And the China guy, who seemed like a really cool guy, said, well, yeah, come to China. I eat you. Oh. So at that point, I said, okay, maybe I don't need to be in China right now. Hey, no, you don't. <laughs> and so I started walking along, and I stepped in some black goo thing. Uh-oh. And I just felt the sensation of swinging through the air. And a lot of rage. Oh, no. And then I ended up on a ship, and now here I am on Monster Island. Were you drinking? <laughs> nope. Are you sure? Are you sure? I do know I kept hearing the, this deep voice the whole time, and the word venom kept coming up to my ah, mind a lot. okay, okay. I agree with him. You would have been better off calling him up on Uber. He would have given you a ride in Uber Mogura. Yes. Well, it was very much happenstance. But hey, I'm here. Yeah. And being here is good. It is good. Yeah. 
especially since you're here to help me continue the new series we have going on here on the Film Vault, which is... America, 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 America. America, I do. That's right, Amerikaiju marches on, or I guess in this case it oozes on, I suppose. Because you're here, Mr. Anderson, to talk with me about The Blob, the original from 1958. You requested yes. to come on and talk about a 1950s monster movie, and I looked at my schedule and I thought, well, why not this one? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, had you seen it before you came here today to watch it with me? Yes. My mom raised me on 1950s sci-fi. Ah, okay. And that includes monster movies. In fact, my first understanding of nerdiness was my mom introducing me to Godzilla movies when Mm -hmm. I was five or six years old. Mm -hmm. I see that as the beginning of my nerdiness. Of your nerdy journey? Of course, of course. Yes, Jimmy, we know all about your introductions to nerdiness, mostly because you lived it. This guy, he gets a couple of movies based on some wild chapters of his life, and it just goes to his head. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For sure. And so, you know, we're talking about The Blob, and interestingly, Eric, did you know did you know? I did. I actually have my friend John LeMay to thank for this. He made me aware of this. In fact, I ended up changing what my toku topic was going to be thanks to something that John said a few weeks ago on our previous episode, which is that this movie is inspired by a true story. Did you know that? I had not heard that before. What I had heard in high school, we talked about the Bob in history. Really? And there was talk of seeing the blob as a representation of communism. Save that for the main and discussion. I'm a little baffled. Yes. And so is Jimmy. <laughs> okay, you're going to have to explain to me how that works. I did not come across that in any of my research. But no, our toku topic today is going to be star jelly. I know that sounds like something you put on your toast, but you definitely don't want to put it on your toast. <laughs> This is a real phenomenon, and I think, I think I may have come across it myself. We might even have a little bit of it here on the island. Maybe that's how I got to the island. Maybe the goo I stepped in was star jelly. Maybe. I'm still operating under the theory that the star jelly here on the island is kaiju doo-doo. Sure, Jimmy, but hashtag I regret nothing. Anyway. Jimmy, let him have it. Really good at him about it. Yeah, Jimmy, we both annoy him about that one. Oh. He can do better jokes, man. Uh, well, I did just get a review on the power trip where my co-host Michael and I were told that we weren't quite as funny as we thought we were. Oh, don't you dare agree with that one, Jimmy. Uh, see what I put up with? Uh, all right. <clears throat> anyway, speaking of Jimmy... While I am no longer contractually obligated to do this, I have to read his entertaining info dump to get all the kaiju lovers and all of us on the same page about this film. So, 
Let's get to it, shall we? The blob is an amorphous protoplasmic mass that falls to Earth inside a meteor. It smothers and dissolves its victims, human and animal alike, growing larger with each one it consumes. Whether these actions are malicious or instinctual is unknown. Steve Andrews is a determined and heroic teenager who witnesses a killing by the blob and tries to warn his town about it. Unfortunately, the adults don't believe him, so he resorts to unorthodox methods to get the word out. His girlfriend, Jane Martin, is a supportive and kind young woman who acts as his sounding board and as a voice of reason as events continue to escalate. The firm and grounded Lieutenant Dave Barton is the local police chief who at first has doubts as to whether Steve is telling the truth, but once the blob's existence is undeniable, he does everything he can to protect the town, even going so far as to put his fellow officer in check. Tony, Mooch, and Al are three teens acquainted with Steve. While at first they seem abrasive and vindictive, they become stalwart friends when Steve convinces them of the blob's threat. The human and kaiju plotlines are at first separate, but as time goes on, the blob disrupts the characters' lives and envelops their stories, proverbially speaking, until they become unified. Even so, the characters sometimes do have moments where they're focused on matters other than the blob. Barney the old man tries briefly to scrape the blob off his hand with a stick, but to no avail. Steve and Jane take him to Dr. T. Hallen for treatment. The doctor considers amputating the man's arm to save him, but the blob consumes Barney and attacks Dr. Hallen and his nurse, Kate. Dr. Hallen shoots the blob with a rifle, but bullets have no effect, and the blob kills him and Kate. Steve and Jane encounter the blob at Mr. Andrews' grocery store. Steve throws numerous objects at it, including a cleaver, which has no effect on it. However, when the blob tries to catch Steve and Jane in the meat locker, it retreats. After attacking a movie theater and cornering Steve, Jane, and her brother Danny in a diner with the restaurant's owner and waitress, the police shoot a live wire off of a power line to electrocute the blob, but it's unaffected. The problem is solved thanks to Steve's ingenuity. With the diner on fire, Steve battles the blaze with a fire extinguisher, which repulses the blob. He deduces that the blob is weak to freezing, which he tells Barton over the phone. The teens and other townspeople collect fire extinguishers from the school and spray the blob. This allows everyone in the diner to escape. Barton calls the U.S. Air Force to airlift the blob to the Arctic, where it presumably will remain frozen. The script by Caitlin Aker and Theodore Simonson from a story by Irving H. Milgate is a simple science fiction horror story with elements of then-popular teenage delinquency films. However, it does have some subtle subplots for a few characters, such as the romance between Steve and Jane and a vibrant supporting cast. This is an independent, low-budget film that stretched every penny it had. The special effects alone took six months to create. The blob was realized using an inflating balloon, a silicone compound that needed to be dyed red several times a day, animation, and matting. In fact, this was one of the last films to use hand-drawn matting, the shot of the falling electrical lines. The crew had very little film to work with, so they had to, quote, edit in the camera, end quote. Even so, the cinematography is creative, and the small town setting adds an authentic quaintness to the film. Overall, it rivals any science fiction film being produced in Hollywood at the time, despite, or perhaps because of, 
its budget. Tonally, the film strikes a deft balance between horrific and comedic. It's genuinely scary at points, but things like the silly pop song during the credits add levity. Regardless, the characters and events are treated seriously and given a moderate amount of gravitas. With a slimy space creature that falls to Earth in a meteor, it's definitely a science fiction story. The Blob was one of the first films to combine the science fiction and teen delinquency genres, but it went a step further by making the teens the heroes and giving the story a happy ending. While creatures similar to The Blob had appeared in other media, there was nothing quite like it, and there wasn't again for a long while. These moves were experimental, but it was also tapping into popular trends at the time. This is a film of firsts, establishing several styles. It's the prototype for teen horror films and paved the way for other independent cult films like Carnival of Souls and Night of the Living Dead. Its story structure and creature would also be copied for decades by filmmakers like the Chiodo Brothers and studios like DreamWorks. In short, it's one of the most influential science fiction slash creature features of the 1950s. This film was made to tap into the popularity of both teen delinquency and science fiction films. As such, it was meant to entertain a teen audience, and while it did appeal to a broader general audience, it validated the teen audience by making teenagers the heroes. When the film was released September 12, 1958, it grossed $4 million against a $110,000 budget, $39.8 million and $1.09 million, respectively, in modern-day dollars. It goes without saying it was a massive hit. While some contemporary and present-day critics are harsh toward it, it is beloved by monster, sci-fi, and classic film fans alike. Several forces are at play. A generational gap is seen throughout the film with Steve and the teens clashing with the adults, who don't believe their story about the Blob. This allows the Blob to continue its reign of terror. Teens also defy authority as represented by the sheriff and other police officers. The unknown, in the form of the Blob, baffles the characters and defies definition. The Blob's appetite and the human's right to survive are in constant conflict. While no messages were intended, several themes are present in the film. The truth is to be valued and believed no matter the source. Adults are admonished to take teens seriously and not assume the worst about them. Authority figures fail to deal with the crisis, so the blob is defeated by the ingenuity of small-town citizens. Steve's love for Jane is shown to be genuine. Despite the prevailing prejudicial attitude of adults, teenagers are shown to be just as heroic as any of them. Time to get on with some Toku Talk! There, Jimmy. I hope you're happy. Anyway, Mr. Anderson. Yes. Fresh out of the screening room. What are your thoughts? When was the last time you saw this film before today? Uh, it was with my mom again. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> was it like how you remembered? Yeah. It was a good mystery with a small town. So you've got people who aren't used to dealing with anything. No. Dealing with something incredibly weird. Of course. Of course. And I actually appreciated the small town setting because, well, born and raised Hoosier boy who <laughs> grew up in the boonies 
And so I'm used to small towns. Yeah, I I grew up in the woods as well, and Fruitport isn't exactly known on the map. So uh, Fruitport, Michigan? Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And what's interesting is that this was actually filmed in a place called, I think it was Phoenixville. I think it's Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. So it was filmed on the East Coast, but it feels yes. very Americana. It, oh it my gosh, this might be one Americana. of the most Americana movies I've ever seen. Well, and, and that is probably another part of the reason why we watched it in high school history was to probably another way to get a feel for the 1950s and what life was like back then oh yeah for sure i i feel like robert zemeckis saw this movie growing up which may have contributed to back to the future i'm just saying especially when they do the backwards drag race that actually was one of my favorite moments in the whole film was the backwards drag race i wonder if this somewhat influenced a certain villain slash anti-hero that interacts with spider-man mr venom possibly possibly but I don't think Venom dissolves people. <laughs> no. No, uh, does not dissolve people. Yeah, but, yeah, but uh, the, the landing, although, no, that's not the original story of how Venom was found, so never No, mind. it's not. I've read the original origin not story. Yeah. But now, let's talk about the blob here for a second, because I wasn't kidding when I said this has to be one of the strangest of all kaiju. I mean, the only thing yeah. I can think of that's remotely close to what the blob is it would be something like hadora and hadora is mm-hmm. all kinds of yeah. weird in his own right the blob yeah. is truly bizarre it, it's it, at it, once something that could be done on the cheap but it's also something that is weirdly horrifying if you stop and think about it for too long it is weirdly horrifying and it's strange because you don't know how much choice the blob has and what it consumes. You know, I actually read an essay that was in the booklet that came with the Criterion version, which is what I have here in the film vault on the island, okay. that the essayist, uh, it was a Kim Newman, I think was the author's name, actually argued that you don't know if the blob is malignant or if it's just a force of nature. Right. There's a yeah. lot of mystery with this thing. We don't know. We still don't know. This is true. <laughs> the blob's on display here in the island. We still don't know. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Are you sure it's safe to have it on display? Oh, it's in a bucket. A very closed bucket. <laughs> but if it's not in a cold space... Oh, it's a I cold mean, bucket. It's another triple situation. It, it's it's a very cold... another triple situation. Yes, it's a very cold bucket, I assure you. <laughs> It's an ice bucket. <laughs> we came prepared. <laughs> an ice bucket. An ice bucket. Okay. It's like a tiny refrigerator. Don't worry. <laughs> it's on loan to us from the good people in Pennsylvania. Because apparently uh, they're very fond of this thing. That poor town. <laughs> I know they have a festival for it every year. Yeah, uh, Blobomania. Is that what it is? Blobfest. Blobfest. That's what it is. Blobfest. Yeah, it's a big deal, yeah. man. It's a huge deal. It is. Yeah, they but really no, mean- this thing is so incredibly weird. And I get the impression that is that it, it constantly consumes. And the more it consumes, the bigger it gets. So, it, And we don't know where exactly it came from other than it's from outer space. And... 
It just latches onto any living thing it can find and doesn't leave anything behind. So I'm guessing it dissolves and smothers people. That poor old man. <laughs> yeah, the poor old man. It, I also noticed it doesn't seem to dissolve grass or plant material. It also but, doesn't I mean, leave we, a residue whenever it oozes around, yeah. but, you know, who cares? <laughs> but it does dissolve clothing, apparently. Yeah, it, I mean, there's so, some there's some inconsistencies, but you learn to wor- work yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah, but I I like the elegance in its simplicity. You know, it, it just crawl, it just kind of crawls around and jumps onto things and eats them. We're led to believe, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, it's well, maybe we could learn something. I found this thing near a blue box. I mean, oh, what the? Uh, I'll wait. All I'm getting is, don't drop me in it. That's all I'm getting. Okay. Makes sense. I don't want to get dropped into the blob either. <laughs> I don't think anything I'm or sure anybody we can does. That. I don't think anybody or anything does. I'm, I'm Maybe even Hedorah's scared of the thing. Who knows at this point? <laughs> but... Have you asked Hedorah? That if, uh, you want to ask Hedorah? <laughs> <laughs> Although well, maybe I'm braver than you, uh, possibly, possibly. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the what, speaking of the blob, what did you think of the effects in this film? I feel like they were simple but effective. And yeah, for the day that that they made the movie, mm-hmm. they worked pretty darn well. They were working with almost nothing in terms of money. When I was doing my research, I found out that they basically, like the producer, Jack Harris, and several other people were basically just pooling all their money. They were taking out second mortgages and borrowing against their, you know, like their children's college funds and all that to get the money to make this thing. And they ended up making it for about $100,000 in the 50s. Yeah. But it made gobs of money at the box office and... And actually got pretty popular. In fact, Jack Harris said that out of all the movies that he made, this was the one he spent the least amount of time promoting because it just like it became the topic of comedians. So they were cracking jokes about it all the time. This movie and the title and, you know, like I said, it was highly, highly profitable. The effects were all done pretty simply. The Mm -hmm. first appearance of the blob was actually done with a balloon. So okay. the, the little yeah. meteor thing in the crater yep. that the unfortunate old man pokes, what's inside of that was a balloon. He should have tried this thing that I found. Yeah, he, he probably should have tried poking, using this poking it. Yeah, he probably should have. And then later on when you saw it, that was a silicone prop that they filled with red food coloring. And they had to dye that thing a couple times a day because the silicone doesn't like maintaining color. So they kept having to say to each other, die, please, as they're yes, yes. They getting ready to die. Yes, of course. Of course. You stole my line, but. <laughs> we were both in that game group. Yes, we were. I know. I know. No, Jimmy, you don't. Actually, maybe you do want to know because it involves Star Wars, but <laughs> we'll talk later, man. All right. No one wants to hear us talk about our college days, I'm pretty sure. But but I find the effects in this, they're weirdly quaint. In fact, some of the techniques that they use, uh, for what I was reading, 
this was actually some of the last times that some of them were used. Like at the end mm-hmm. of the film, when the blob is enveloping the diner and they're trying to knock the live wire from the power line onto yeah. it, that was actually an, a hand-drawn mat. And they said that mm-hmm. this was one of the last movies that ever did that. Right. It goes yeah. by really fast, but <laughs> it was one of the last times it w- it was ever done, which is just really interesting. And I mean, I've already talked about the, you know, the origins and all of that, you know, with uh, in the entertaining info dump about how this was meant to tap into the science fiction and the quote unquote teen delinquency movies like Rebel Without a Cause and things like that, that it made that popular. But one of the things that makes this very distinctly different and this, and well, I guess we'll transition here a little bit is that the teens in this. They're the heroes. They're not the problem in this, which is really interesting. It's kind of a first of its kind because there's been a lot of movies in the sci-fi and horror genre that star teenage heroes. The 80s was replete with them, you know, things like Nightmare on Elm Street and things like that. But The Blob was really the first one to do that. And it's interesting because you can see the tension in this because the adults, a lot of the adults don't like the teens. And they distrust everything that they say, and they just assume they're all a bunch of delinquents. This film does not portray anyone as being a perfect human being. No. Like, <laughs> everyone has... The, the, you can see the character flaws in each person fairly well. hmm And they don't paint teens as either superheroes or as really terrible kids. They just paint them as people trying to make their way through a summer during high school, mm-hmm. doing their thing, mm-hmm. and... Mm-hmm. Not always with wisdom, but doing their thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's unfortunate being in high school when you're 27. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Mr. McQueen. Uh, Was yeah. it 28? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of the joke that, yeah. <laughs> that Steve McQueen, the star of this movie, is his first starring role in a movie that he was 28 going on 18 or something like that. Or tw- he was a yeah. 30 playing 15 and things like that. It was just kind of funny. <laughs> but we'll, yeah. we'll get to Steve McQueen here in a little bit. But it's interesting because the teens have to engage in what would normally be considered delinquent behavior. But they're doing it because no one believes them and they know that their town is in trouble. So they have to do things like set off the tornado alarms and honk all the horns on the cars to wake everybody up and tell them that there's a monster that's trying to kill everybody. And you know, and it makes the sheriff who doesn't like teenagers uh, angry. And it was like, there's a lot of things going on in this story, in this script. There's crazy amount actually for an 83 minute movie there's a lot going on and it all feels very tightly written and right. you know everything has a purpose everything ties into the other even a, a a nice little scene between steve that is the actual character's name steve and jane the girlfriend where they just mm-hmm. they just talk to each other for yeah. a little bit even that i feel like has some significance because doing a little bit of character building here and you're showing that they have a lot more going on. I, I, one of my favorite bits didn't even necessarily have to be there, but one of the, co- we find out one of the cops plays who, uh, who works the night shift plays chess. Yes. <laughs> With a chessboard in his desk drawer. It's great. <laughs> it, it is. And he calls up, he calls up someone else through the radio and says, and plays yep. around against him. It's like chess by mail, except it's chess by radio, you know? <laughs> and when you're in a, a sleepy little town, 
what else are you going to do? I mean, <laughs> nowadays we can play on maps by radio, but you know. Uh, well, yes, this is true. But I'll explain later, Jimmy. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, so uh, there's. You haven't, what? You haven't introduced him yet? I'm You're sorry. You Jimmy the games. I'm sorry. Okay. Just, it's just, yeah. I've been busy. Busy. Anyway, <laughs> I've been researching the blob. Okay, but <laughs> but anyway, so I think all of these characters are you know are very nice. They're very slice of life sort of characters. I I read an right. essay where this guy actually I couldn't believe this. The guy said that the script was intelligently written. He, in fact, he said it was too intelligently written because it was made. It was this is an independent film. It was not made right. as part of the Hollywood system. There were a couple of studios involved, but the primary one that did the production was Valley Forge Pictures, which actually kind of makes it funny that I'm having the guy who started Nerd Chapel on about this movie because guess what Valley Forge Pictures was really known for? In fact, they made 3,000 of these things before they got The Blob. The Blob was their first feature-length film. Starts about religion? Yes, <laughs> they made educational and religious films. In fact, the director, Yeworth Jr., actually was friends with Billy Graham and had worked with Billy Graham. <laughs> right. So think about that for a second. And then they go and make the blob. <laughs> yeah. A bunch of small-town religious filmmakers made a science fiction movie about a man-eating protoplasm from outer space. Yep. <laughs> it's just wild. But I think that also informs some of what they did. You know, they tried to make the kids good kids and <laughs> as opposed to the delinquents that we were seeing in a lot of other films like this. But, you know, going back to that subject, this movie really does validate the teenagers and tell them, hey, just because the adults don't believe you doesn't mean you're not right. So I'm sure for the young audience that this was intended for, that probably made them feel pretty good. You know, it's kind of like that Bible verse, don't let anyone look down on you just because you're young. Right. Well, and as a teacher, I, I could see times where I did not handle things well. You know, mm -hmm. a, few, a couple of times when I had to apologize to kids because I just didn't handle something well. Mm -hmm. And for me, I do have to do with some kids who do lie and do. Mm-hmm cause problems and so you have to really get to know the try to get to know each kid differently because you know most kids won't be but trying to cause problems but until you get to know them you don't you, you have a hard time discerning what is going on that's for sure i used to do the substitute teaching thing so i know all about that know all about that yes now here's something there's some disagreement over whether or not this is a suspenseful film or not I've read some people who said it, they thought it wasn't and some people who said it was. I think it is. I think this is actually a remarkably well-made film, especially when you consider the fact that they were on such a tight budget, they had to, quote-unquote, edit in the camera. They couldn't do a lot of takes, do a lot of different angles for things. They basically had to pick the shots and stick to those shots as they were going because they had so little film to use. Because, yes, I'm talking about film people actual physical yes. film that they are recording on here this yep. is the 1950s dang it yep so 
I don't know if I would call it suspenseful, but I'm not really a guy who gets grabbed by suspense very much. Okay. So, as someone who doesn't get grabbed by suspense, I would say it keeps your attention and it keeps you focused on on itself. Is it scary? A little bit. It has its parts where it's a little bit scary, but I've also seen it so many times I don't get scared by it anymore. Ah, I see. I see. I admit that up until when I was prepping for this this broadcast, I actually hadn't seen it in a long time, years actually. I think the last time I saw it might have been when I was in high school. So there were some bits that I remembered, some that I didn't. I swear I actually, as a kid, may have actually seen clips of this on, of all things, Muppet Babies. Except I think they were throwing pies at it to make it go away and not fire extinguishers. Yeah, let, let's throw a few pies, you know. Yeah, yeah you, you have some pies handy in case you go see it today in the ice bucket? I brought some stuff from Grand Traverse Pie Company with me. Oh, so, you're going to waste you, it on that thing? If you really don't want to eat any pies, I guess we can throw those at it. Ah, yeah, sure. But sure. I think we'd just be feeding it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's developed a taste for pies. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, well, actually, speaking of the old man, I actually did think when I was watching the movie again, I was like, this guy looks familiar, and I could tell you why. He was in the last Amerikaiju film that I covered. Them! With the giant ants. He had a bit role in that. I like them. I watched, I've watched that more than the blob. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> I, I guess, well, I don't know if I should be surprised or not, actually. But no, he hmm. was the he was the singing crazy guy who was uh, saying, make me a sergeant. It's the same guy. Yes, yes. Make me a sergeant. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's the same fella. Okay. So there you go. But that that was actually something that was done intentionally by the filmmakers. They wanted to have the supporting cast be people who weren't famous, but they were recognizable. So, okay. you know, they were finding all these character actors that people would know from other things. So I guess it worked. And um, sadly, this was that his name was Olin Howland, I think was his name. This was his last movie. He died a few years oh. after this. I don't know, the year after this. 1959, wow. unfortunately. So the blob did get him, huh? I guess it did. I guess yeah. it did. But yeah, yeah, we were talking about the teens being nuanced in this. I mean, they're doing the racing thing. They start off yep. kind of bullyish at the beginning. You don't necessarily quite That's like true. them. But then you find out that, oh, they're just goofing around. They actually don't hate this other kid. But then they're also talking about going to the midnight movie which apparently this is one of the first times that the people talked about midnight movies because they weren't a thing in Hollywood. This was much more of a outside Hollywood sort of a thing. So this is one of the first movies to acknowledge that. And so, uh, uh. so these, they were gonna, these boys, these teenage boys were going to go find the quote unquote unprotected women in the balcony. Like you cats. <laughs> you well, what, what, got, what got me is they're in the spook show. So why would they need to go see a spook show? They're already in the spook yeah, show. Yeah, that is. I think that's the joke. <laughs> that is the joke. By the way, that theater's still around. The Colonial. It is. Every year for Blobfest, they reenact the running out of the theater scene, <laughs> and you can be part of it. Oh, I would so totally to do it. You can be part of reenacting the running out of the theater scene. Uh, hey, Jimmy, let's set that up, okay? Good. Keep Uber Moger at the ready. We're, we need to go check out Blobfest. Oh, I don't think... 
are they having Bloodfest this year or not? I know they didn't during COVID land. My guess is they will be, but I don't know. We we could always look into it. Yeah, that's for sure. I'd love to go. I think it would be amusing. Be very amusing. Imagine if you did a live recording there. I'd love to. But you know, you know, but speaking of that scene, but speaking of that scene, one of the most interesting bits of cinematography in this, because this is actually a very well shot movie. One of my favorite shots is when the the doctor has the old man in the next room on the table and he starts moving a little bit because the blob is slowly consuming him and he sees him right. in the mirror. So that was re- that was a very good shot there. Uh, yes. Oh, we have, because they were so low on film, they didn't do a lot of close-ups. You'll notice that there aren't a lot of close-ups in this because they couldn't get multiple angles. But you notice how they get that low-angle shot when the crowd is running? That was an accident. Mm-hmm. The cameraman yep, got knocked an- over, and he just kept shooting. <laughs> and then they looked at her like, well, we'll keep it. <laughs> yeah I've I've done lighting for events and there's been a few times when I had some sort of little accident and I'm like oh that's better than what I was going to do I'll keep that yeah I'll record that (laughs) yes Jimmy a happy accident inside joke unless you've listened to the show (laughs) go listen to my episode on Rodam and Kaiju Kim you'll get it or if you're a fan of Bob Ross, maybe you'll get it. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I have a note here that just says, like, the blob is scary because it's so bizarre and undefinable. Yeah. I should, we should have brought that up earlier, actually. That's okay. Oh, you'll appreciate this, Eric. Steve isn't in the habit of telling lies because uh, that was uh, said by his father when they're trying to figure out if he's telling the truth or not. And I just wrote down, ah, yeah, the, the Professor Dickery approach. <laughs> and only the Narnia fans will get that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So what did you so, think of the line? How do you get people to protect themselves from something they don't believe in? Just about any time period you look at, that hits like spot on. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty hard hitting. Yeah, you know, on a lot of levels, not just the fact that they're you know a bunch of kids that nobody believes. Yeah. That's the other thing. The authority figures actually fail in this movie pretty bad. Right. In fact, in points they make it worse. The adults make things yeah. worse. The blob emerges and grabs onto an old man, you know, as opposite from a teenager as you can get. The cops yeah. don't believe anybody. In fact, because they tarry on believing the kids, they make the problem worse. The doctor fails to stop the blob. The cops fail to stop the blob. In fact, the adults, the authority figures, they can't stop the blob until the kids figure out how to do it. Yes. So this brings to mind the concept of you can't defend yourself if you don't believe in it comes to mind. Actually, we had a a friend in in college who was taking a counseling class from a Christian perspective with a Christian psychologist, Mm -hmm. a guy who's very well known for writing books. He said some of the situations or even many of the situations where he had someone that came to him who had been diagnosed with disassociative disorder or multiple personality disorder. Mm -hmm. He actually took a different approach, more of a spiritual approach and said, well, what if this person is just dealing with demonic involvement and they actually need a healing from that. 
a bunch of his cases when he did what what Protestants might call deliverance ministry and others might call exorcism. When he did that, the people were freed and they didn't have to go back on their medication. Oh, interesting. How does that relate to this line? When psychologists didn't want to believe that there was a spiritual option, Mm -hmm. refused to believe that, they didn't consider that as even something to deal with. Mm -hmm. To them, that didn't even exist at all. Mm. And yet these people were suffering from something spiritual, not something psychological. Mm. Now, I've mentioned in here that some Christians are way too hard on psychologists, Mm -hmm. and they don't take mental health seriously enough. Mm. But then you also have the opposite, where people don't take spiritual health in a very good good light and don't understand the need for spiritual health either. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Also, speaking of the theater... The theater owner was a friend of Jack Harris, the producer. Yes. Didn't know that he owned a theater, but he told them that to film in the theater, it cost him $1,000 a day, and they needed to film there for three days. Talked him down to 75 bucks for the entire three days. That's a big change from 3000 all the way down to 75 Yeah, I like to know why he thought you know, that it should be that way. But then again, one of the best lines I got from the commentary from Mr. Harris and I just I feel like this is just should just be a mantra for, almost should be a mantra for life but that, this probably explains why he was able to do that he he said I quote we were too stupid to think we could fail so we succeeded <laughs> <laughs> That's great that reminds me of a speaker I heard once who was a producer he created the show McGee and Me which is a faith based Oh show, yeah but- I've met that guy yeah, we both met him, at, I think, at college again. But um, he said, people ask me how I get to do all these crazy things. And, and, you know, in life, he's worked on multiple continents as a writer and as a creative person. And he's been in situations where he was on the Amazon with snake in the boat. And they said, don't move or it'll attack you. And it's very poisonous. He's had knives held on him. He's been, you know, he, he's taught comedic writing to Egyptians. Like, he's done a lot, and he says, some people ask me how I'm able to do all this. He said, well, I'm a fool, a moron, and an idiot. (laughs) And then he goes, and then he says, oh, and when God tells me to do something, I say yes. (laughs) So, (laughs) that was one of my favorite, I I think that's one of the most quotable things we ever heard in chapel during college. Yeah, I would have to agree. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm just rummaging through, just looking at all like this this, this ridiculous number of notes that I have on this. You do have so a- much we could talk about with this. There were some similar movies out at the time. The Blob okay. was just the most successful one of its kind. Right. You know, there was a Blob creature in a story called It by Theodore Sturgeon. You had the Chicken Heart from from the Lights Out radio show. There was a comic book character called The Heap, who was a forerunner to Swamp Thing. There was okay. a British film called The Quatermass Experiment that had an astronaut who got turned into a basically a goo monster. And then in other countries, you had also from Britain, you had the X, the Unknown. These were the same year as The Blob in the UK. Japan, famously, Toho Studios, on the docket to be covered potentially on the podcast, had the H-Man. Which that's a chilling film. You want to see a chilling film? There's you know, watch, check out the H Man. The H Man. Yes, and then Italy had a film called Caltiki the Immortal Monster. Caltiki. Yep, 
Now, after The Blob came out, they didn't really make movies like that anymore, but then there were films that would copy its story structure. Stuff like 1964's The Creeping Terror, and I've actually seen this one. I don't know if you have, Eric, but Killer Clowns with a K from Outer Space from 1988. I think I saw a bit of it. I don't know if I watched the entire movie, but I do think I watched a bit of it on TV once. Yeah, it's it's a weird little movie. Chiodo Brothers. Yeah. yeah, it's a weird little movie. And this was the forerunner to other independent genre films that developed a huge following and ended up becoming strangely influential because this is a very influential movie you know so stuff like carnival of souls night of the living dead the texas chainsaw massacre it really paved the way it was kind of again it was the first of its kind for many reasons and interestingly if i remember correctly i think two of those three films are in the criterion collection probably for those reasons as weird as it sounds yes Night of the Living Dead. George Romero's okay. Night of the Living Dead is in the Criterion Collection. That's crazy. You, you, we could also note that to a certain degree, Star Wars was somewhat of an independent project because yeah. George Lucas financed it himself. Mm-hmm. Also, did you know it took them two weeks to come up with a title? They were working really hard. The filmmaker set up a blackboard where anybody on the crew, and by the way, they had like they had a pretty massive crew, and they all just hung out on the compound for... Valley Forge pictures. It was like being at a school. They all would eat in a common area and everything. You know, and they had men, women, and their kids. They were all there. And so they had a blackboard set up where people could just suggest ideas because the working title was the Molten Meteor. But they didn't necessarily yeah. like that title. So you want to know what two of the mo- of the popular titles that they were considering before they settled on the blob? Well, I mean, if people didn't want Maltons to be be part of the title, what could beat that? Uh, one was The Glob That Girdled the Globe. That's worthy of a Stan Lee. <laughs> that is very um, Stan Lee-ish. I do, like, I do yes. like the alliteration. And then another popular one with the crew was Night of the Creeping Dread. The Creeping Dread. That does sound like a B- 1950s B-movie. That or a metal band. <laughs> the creepy dread <laughs> but yes. the they liked the glob they, so they were going to go with the glob but then they found out the glob was copyrighted <laughs> so then a guy said okay I'm going to look through a dictionary see what I can find and the first thing you saw was uh, well not the first thing you saw but one of the first things he saw was the blob so I'm like okay <laughs> The glob was copyrighted. Yes. For what? I don't know. I just know they said it was copyrighted. They couldn't use it. There's a video okay. game now called The Glob. Or it's like Dog Glob, D-A, Dog Glob. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there was also Globulus from G.I. Joe. So. Yes. You know. Yep. <laughs> well, and then Marvel had a character named The Blob. Nothing moves the blob. Yes, everyone bounces off of him. Yes, everything. They, do not, they don't get consumed by him the way that this blob consumes, though. No, he just... Well, in Ultimate Marvel, that's kind of true. Really? Yeah, but we don't talk about Ultimate Blob. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we don't talk about Ultimate Blob. However, you know something that this blob has that the Marvel blob doesn't have? A theme song. 
That's true. He does. I forgot about the theme song until I watched it again, prepping for the show. Oh my gosh. That little ditty. That is actually another one of the reasons the movie got popular is because that actually became a top 40 radio hit. Well, I mean, this was during the era when one of the another popular song was one line, one horn, purple flying people leader. Oh, that was later, actually. Oh, well, was yeah, the 60s. No, it was in the 80s. I looked that up. Flying purple people leader was in the 80s. Yep. Huh. 1988, I think I read, because that was brought up about how this paved the way for stuff like that. Oh, no, are you going to fact-check me? You're going to fact-check me? <laughs> You're beating Jimmy to it. You're going to fact-check me live. Oh, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> Enjoy that little laptop they leave here in the studio. <laughs> I was just going to mention that you know, they credit that song to the quote-unquote five blobs, but it was actually just one guy recording all the voices. <laughs> Bernie Knee. So, the Purple People Eater, novelty song written and performed by Sheb Woolley, which reached number one in the Billboard Pop Charts in 1958. Oh. Now, that's Wikipedia. It sounds like Jimmy's impressed. <laughs> yeah. One horn flying Purple People Eater descends to Earth because it wants to be in a rock and roll band. Well, now I just feel silly. Yes, according to Woolley, MDM Records initially rejected the song, saying it was not the type of music with which they wanted to be identified. Well, sheesh. An acetate acetate of the song reached MDM Records' New York office. The acetate became popular with the office's young people. Up to 50 people would listen to the song at lunchtime. The front office reconsidered their decision and decided to release the song. Of course. Now I just feel silly. Congratulations, Jimmy. He showed us both up. Yeah, we'll both nurse our egos after this. Yeah, but the composer, Ralph Carmichael, actually did compose a piece of music that they replaced without really telling him with that pop song Mm. that was called Violence, and it was meant to make the movie open pretty scary. Mm -hmm. I wonder sometimes what that piece of music would have sounded like, what it would have done. But I feel like this funny little pop song adds to the old-fashioned charm of this film. It does. It keeps you in the, the time period very well, which it should, you know. Yes. It is a 1950s film. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice little bit of fun to add to it. You know, it was a fun theme song. And mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they could have had a scary theme for it, but people like fun themes. That's why, you know, Agatha's song from WandaVision was so popular. <laughs> it was Agatha all along. <laughs> Oh, and those are actual real houses that they're using when they're filming in the neighborhoods and stuff. Mm-hmm. Those are yeah. actual people's houses that got immortalized in a, in a funny little sci-fi movie. But I, I do but agree it, with you. I do agree with you. It's, I don't know. See, that's the thing. I The more I think about it, the more I think that this film really does a pretty good job of striking a very interesting balance between being, I guess, silly and serious. It strikes right. just the right tone because, the, did you know there was a sequel to this? I don't recall ever hearing about the sequel. Yeah, it was from the early 70s, and it apparently, I haven't seen it yet, but it is apparently it's a comedy. So they uh. went full tail funny with it. And there is a remake from the 80s. 
I have seen that. You've seen the eighties remake. Oh boy. Uh, I'm yeah. scared to watch the eighties version. I hear it's, uh, it tries to be a heck of a lot scarier and the blob is a heck of a lot nastier. They do focus more on the horrifying aspect and less on the comedy. There's more womanizing by a character than you had in the. Yeah. In the so. Well, I, I mean, the, uh, Jack Harris actually commented on it in his commentary. He said that he didn't like the remake because he said they did everything that they were trying not to do. They wanted right. their monster to be defeated by just these regular people, you know, yeah. by the teenagers and by just these townspeople, townsfolk. Small town yes. people. They didn't want to call in the military to solve the problem. And then they did at the end, but it was after they figured out that they could freeze it. So they just said airlift this thing to the Arctic, which I'm sure is making all of the climate change activists gives them a new talking point. It's like, keep the Arctic frozen so we don't have the blob. <laughs> so we don't have to worry about the blob. And no. Don't worry about the polar bears. Worry about the blob. And the thing. And oh yes, and the thing. Yes. And you mean the you mean the alien creature, not the silly nickname that they've given to Mothra, right? Correct. Yes. So now I, I honestly I'm just kind of flipping through just looking at my notes, seeing what interesting things I could I can find. The head of Valley Forge Films was a Baptist minister. They said he was great during the scripting process, but he wasn't as much fun during filming because he had to take su- he had to take Sundays off t- to go play the organ at his church. Mm-hmm. And they had to do that five times because they, they they filmed the movie relatively quickly, but it took him six months to do the special effects. Yeah, which is a, a reasonable amount of time. Although uh, it's a lot. Although I should have brought this up. Speaking of the you know of freezing the blob at the end. The end question mark Jack mm-hmm. Harris said was one of his trademarks. And I have to think that this movie must have solidified that as some sort of a trope because now everyone thinks every 50 sci-fi movie ends with the end question mark. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Yeah. Some might say that that was sequel baiting, but it took them 15 years to make a sequel. Yeah. People think That's it's weird. Na- People think it's weird now when Hollywood makes a sequel to a 15-year-old movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or more. We would go much. I mean, Ghostbusters got. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, like 35 like years. Yeah. You know, one thing that we will find funny that people in the day would not have found funny was the old lady who didn't understand why they went let her dust around the fingerprints. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there are some moments where the characters have a bit of a country bumpkinness to them. Yes, and that fit really well. Feels very homespun. Yeah, it, feels very authentic because these most of these people were not professional actors. They weren't professionals at all. I think they said other yeah. than a couple of the main cast members like Steve McQueen, and I think they said they had one makeup artist who was technically a professional. Everyone else was homespun. Yes. Nowadays, to us, that's normal, but back then... They didn't talk about police procedures quite as much, even even that. Yeah. So, you know, fin- I mean, how long has f- fingerprinting been a significant part of police work? Uh, I think since the early 1900s. Okay. Or the 1920s, well, somewhere around there. A little longer than I thought, but still not very long. And I don't know if people would have been aware of it in the general populace back then. Possibly. Maybe. Yeah. 
I also found it funny the guy who uh, who was putting on his helmet before his uniform when they were raising the alarm. <laughs> I don't know what to wear. I don't know. And, what, it, yeah. and in true 1950s sitcom fashion, it's an old couple and they sleep in separate twin beds. Come Which on, was guys. common back then. Even couples did not share beds as much back then. That is so weird to me. That's <laughs> so weird. Yeah. But uh, speaking of cops and. <laughs> Bumpkins, Anita Carso, who played Jane, she actually had a bit of a career after this. Besides the blob, she was, yeah. interestingly, best known for playing a school teacher on the Andy Griffith show. Okay. Yeah, her name was Helen Crump, and she ends up marrying Andy. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> I guess she got a little bit typecast. <laughs> yes. And speaking of TV, according to Mr. Harris... He actually, since the movie came out, uh, up until like the late 90s, because he, I think he died in 2004, I want to say, he said okay. he got two offers to do a Blob TV show. Mm. One, he said, was relatively early on, and he just asked them, well, what are you going to do? And the producer kind of jokingly suggested it would be a quote-unquote good Blob. And then <laughs> and then Harris joked he's like, uh, that he would solve a crime every week. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. The, and then the next one was in the late 90s. All he really said about it was that it would have picked up where the movie left off. Well, maybe the first one would eventually have joined the Justice League. <laughs> I mean, they need a Bob, right? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, well, there is a Blob character in Monsters vs. Aliens. You ever seen that one? Yes, I yeah. have seen that. Yeah. And there's also a Blob character that speaks and and has a crush on the doctor in the orville oh yes i remember that thing now and if you want to talk about pastiches we both played munskin and munskin quest the board game and, and they have uh, the slimes no not the, not the slimes the, the the octahedron the uh oh the gelatinous dodecahedron or something like yes the gelatinous <laughs> dodecahedron <laughs> If you haven't played Munchkin, you need to. Really, Jimmy? You faced a gelatinous dodecahedron once. Hmm. But let me guess. You don't want to talk about it? Of course. Anyway. Bunga bunga. Yes, saving it for the memoir. Got it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Did you know there's actually a parody version of this? That only one of my sources mentioned, and I want to find it now. Really? Yeah, it's called Blobbermouth. Blobbermouth? <laughs> yeah, it was made in 1990. It went straight to video, and it was made by a comedy troupe called L.A. Connection. They did a redub of the movie. Okay. I need to find this now. <laughs> this would be a great addition to the film vault. And if I could find it, maybe we could do a you know a little bonus episode or something later, a little follow-up, sure. you know, for yeah. Blobbermouth. Blobbermouth. Uh, no, Jimmy, you will not call me that from now on. Whatever, Blobbermouth. Mm. You, do you want to leave the island? <laughs> do you want to leave after visiting the Blob today? Anyway. I don't know if your board members would allow that. Uh, maybe not under the new management. No. Oh, I should bring this up. One of the things, you know, we're talking about the teen delinquency thing. 
Did you the yes. the reason why this was happening a lot and why movies were being made specifically for the teen audience is because between 1948 and no 1946 I should say 1960 the teen population in the U.S. doubled. Right, there was a huge population. Yeah, 5.6 million to 11.8, and there was between 1948 and 1953 there was a huge spike in juvenile delinquency, increased by 45 percent. Yeah. Well, and I wonder how many of them, because that, that seems like it might fit with timing for some of the fathers to have been in World War II. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's reference to it because the sheriff thinks that Bert, yeah, thinks that the teens hate him because he because of his quote unquote war record. I don't know why they would hate him for having a war record, but okay. Yeah. And I feel like that timing wise, that would fit with the Korean War rather than World War II, but it could be either. But yeah, you know, some of the kids in the time when delinquency seemed to be on the rise may have come from families where the father wasn't in the picture because he did not come back from World War II. Yeah, it could be that. It, uh, there was a lot of Cold War anxiety going on at the time. I read an essay that talked yep. about The Blob and several other movies and how del- a lot of delinquency was spiking because of those very potent existential crises attached to you know the Cold War and you know, the looming threat of nuclear annihilation so yeah there's a lot of that in there as well so before we actually before i give this last funny little anecdote how does the blob represent communism (laughs) to people who see it that way i think it represents the fear that communism would not stop and would take over everything Mm. as they were watching with how much the ussr was annexing places which may have already been done by that point in the 50s but with the ussr and the threat there and north korea turning to communism and cuba turning to communism you know this was a few years before that really got serious with the cuban missile crisis but with all their thing going on with korea and china and russia i think to some of them it felt like it was becoming a huge thing because those are Two really huge countries, China and the USSR, made for two very large countries and taking over. Now, part of the reason the USSR got so much of Eastern Europe is because the Allies could not take on Hitler alone. They mm-hmm. had to have the help of Stalin. It, it just there was no way they could deal with it on their own. And in order to get get him to come in, they had to make some sort of agreement when it was all over. Mm-hmm. And they ended up saying, "Have this half of Europe." So that's part of the reason why communism grew that much. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that it was because of how much territory was being taken by the USSR, because I've lived in the academic world long enough to say that there probably would be people who would say the blob is supposed to be representative of capitalism because it's constantly consuming. Right. You know, that's my thought. I don't remember everything they said about why they thought it was communism, but that's what I am putting together as I'm trying to remember it. Yeah, for me, that's a little bit of a stretch. The filmmaker said that they didn't have some sort of underlying message that they were trying to communicate necessarily. And around here on the film vault, we don't buy into postmodern critical theory, which says basically death of the author it it doesn't mean anything that authorial intent doesn't mean anything no it does it means a lot you have to take a text on its own terms you can't just make it mean whatever you want it to mean so i think that's a bit of a stretch there (laughs) yep it's kind of like i've read uh, i've read some uh, they they just say it in like one or two sentences at least 
from the essays that I've read. Maybe if I dug around enough, I'd find more. But I've actually seen some critics who try to say that Rodan represents the Soviet Union and Ghidorah represents China. I have not heard that. Yeah. It's but weird. you've read up on those a little bit more than I have. Yeah, so. it's weird, to say the least. It's weird. But with all of that, before we move into the Toku topic, I will leave us on this. This is a line from a contemporary critic reviewing this movie when it first came out. And I think, <laughs> I think we can both appreciate this because... It's pretty puntastic for several reasons. But this critic was talking about how this was made by a studio that made religious films. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, this is a paraphrase, but he basically said if the studio couldn't convert to anybody, they would make something like this and, quote unquote, scare the hell out of people. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know if we realized that there were places who did try to do that throughout <laughs> a few decades there. <laughs> this is true. This is true. And apparently one of the guys who worked on this movie did go on to make an infamous, I guess you could say. I've never seen it, but you know, an infamous little faith-based movie from, I think it was the late 70s, I want to say, called Thief in the Night. I've heard of it. I Yeah, I've heard I of it. I've never I've seen it. I have but I've heard of it. Trust me, Jimmy, you don't want to know. <laughs> You don't want to know. But anyway, now we'll move on to the Toku topic. Hi, this is Eric Anderson from Nerd Chapel. Nerd Chapel is all about bridging the gap between nerd culture and the church. This is done by an online and social media presence, a physical presence at comic, anime, and gaming conventions, and with tabletop game nights in Spring Lake, Michigan. I've also co-written two devotionals for Nerds and Geeks with Nathan Marchand, 42 Discovering Faith or Fandom, and the new 42 God Terraforms All Things. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and please explore the website nerdchapel.com for more information. Alrighty, Eric. Now for one of the stranger... <laughs> Toku topics that I have done. <laughs> you would be surprised how something that sounds like a food stuff has puzzled the scientific community and has also inspired conspiracy theories. I am not kidding. And it inspired movies and stories, and it's inspired a lot of things. <laughs> but, Do we need to call in Eleven and her friends for this conversation or? <laughs> We might have to, but I okay. remember how I said I led by saying that this movie was thanks to my friend John LeMay. I found this based on a true story, which sent me down a research rabbit hole as I am wont to do. But according to Wikipedia, quote, the blob was supposedly based on the Philadelphia reports from 1950 and specifically a report in the Philadelphia Inquirer called Flying Saucer just dissolves where four police officers encountered UFO debris that was described as evaporating with a purple glow, leaving nothing. Also, interestingly, quote, Paramount Pictures was also sued for this movie by the author Joseph Payne Brennan, 
who had written a short story published in Weird Tales magazine in 1953 called Slime about a similar creature. Mm. So there you go. This was inspired by a story from the early 50s in that same area, in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area, about cops finding UFO debris that just dissolved into a purple light. Yeah, Jimmy, I know that's a daily occurrence here. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the star jelly around here just you know, just might be Space Godzilla scat for as far as we know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's what all the star jelly is. He just flies around and it just falls to the ground because that's what it does. Some people actually say that the stuff actually falls to the ground. If you see it fall to the ground, that would be a weird experience. Oh, let me tell you, I found some interesting reports related to that. Mm. Yes, but this is all connected to, like I said, a phenomenon called star jelly. It has multiple different names. Good Lord, there's so many different names. But the more common ones besides star jelly is astromixin or astro jelly. And so it's this gelatinous substance that people find on the ground or on plants. It's usually translucent or a grayish blue. And then it's supposed to just quickly evaporate. I see. Yeah. Folklore says it's deposited on Earth during meteor showers. Hence why, you know, in this movie, the blob comes from from a meteor. But scientific explanations have ranged from it being the remains of frogs or toads or worms or the byproduct of cyanobacteria. I hope I said that right. Specifically, it's theorized that when birds eat frogs or toads, they leave the oviducts which are the reproductive systems and the females, which then swell and distort when exposed to moisture. Although some studies, because they actually have gotten some of this stuff and studied it, not all of the samples that they've studied have DNA in them, which just makes it even weirder. Yeah. Yep. An unknown thing. Yeah. And then some other explanations slash theories for these things. Now, keep in mind, I think the frog and toad thing is the more accepted explanation, but there's some weird ones out there too. Some people also think that it is, I hope I'm saying this right, Mixarium nucleatum, which is a clear gelatinous fungus that grows on decaying wood. I'm sure our resident Matongo lover, Dr. Dorif, would know all about that. Well, when you when you send it, uh, it no, Jimmy, I'm not going to ask him about it because dude's weird. Anyway, what were you saying, Eric? I was gonna say when you said that, it reminded me of Zatara spells. Oh, what's that? So the way Zatara does spells in, oh. in DC comics, it's, it's, oh, you mean Zatana? Zatana, yes. Yeah, I keep Z- going to think of her as Zatara, but yeah, yeah Zatara, Zatana. I think, is her father. Yes. In my mind, just switches the names somehow. Yes, Zatana. But, that's why I was confused. <laughs> Zatana, you know, she says words backwards in her spells. Yes. And for some reason, when you said Mixarium Nucleotum, it made me think of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, another one. This Maybe this is another one of those magic words. Yes, Jimmy, we all know Zatana has very nice legs. We get it. Moving on. Nostok? Remember how I mentioned cyanobacteria? Well, that is actually a freshwater blue-green algae that okay. can form spherical colonies made of filaments of cells and with a gelatinous sheath. When they're on the ground, they aren't normally seen, but you can find them after rainfall because they swell up. Okay. Then some people have thought that they might be slime molds. But here's where you get to the wild ones. 
You ready for this? This is the stuff of science fiction and fantasy stories right here. Although, given that I live and work on Monster Island, maybe it's not so far-fetched. I don't know. But some also have theorized that I don't know how this works, but Star Jelly is a communication method with the dead. Where nothing is communicated? I guess. They also yeah. think that I'm trying to, we run a clean family show here, but this is a scientific thing. This is a biological thing. But be prepared, mom and dad, to have some interesting conversations with your kids if, if they're listening to this with you right now. Some also think it is stag semen, which is just gross. I just want to put that out there right now. That's gross. This was very nonspecific when I was reading about this. It just said, quote-unquote, something excreted by aliens. I don't know how to take that. That gets the biggest scare quotes ever as far as I care. Something excreted by aliens. Mm. And then here's another one of the wild ones. Okay. This is Alex Jones kind of stuff here. This is residue from scientists trying to control the weather. I mean... I'm sure something would be left over after Cobra built their machine, but I don't think it would be uh, The Weather Dominator! <coughs> yes. I can't do that voice for very long. I've, that's why you know I'm not Cobra Commander. <laughs> you are not Cobra Commander. I am not Cobra Commander. And hopefully there's a couple of other reasons as well. Yeah, several, uh, several yeah. of them. The Slander, Jimmy! Slander! How dare you? How dare you? Maybe you're Cobra Commander. Anyway. But then again, I've looked into stuff that involves weather control. Anyway, there were some weather control experiments back in the 60s. It involved yep. freezing an island. And that's where that ugly little potato kid came from. <laughs> from Minya. <laughs> Uh, and in the very least, there's cloud seeding. Yeah, well, yes, and I've done research on cloud seeding. Yeah, actually, so. cloud seeding got brought up in them. Yes, and they brought it, it up did. very casually too. Yep. Yep. Oh, here's one for you. Uh, here's a little quotation from one of my sources that talked about this. This apparently was a really common idea of where star jelly came from. Quote, perhaps the most widely read recent mention of Star Jelly was in Fate magazine, which focuses on strange and unexplained phenomenon. In 1979, they published an article claiming they'd solve the mystery. Are you ready for this? Oh, no. They wrote that the substance, quote, consisted of extraterrestrial cellular organic matter, which exists as presatellar molecular clouds, end quote. Pre-Satellar or pre-Stellar? Pre-Satellar? Maybe it's supposed to be pre-Stellar. I'm not sure. Mm. That might have been a typo on my part. But regardless, if you don't quite understand what that means, don't feel bad. The author of the book says basically what they're saying is that Star Jelly comes from cosmic objects like the Eagle Nebula. In which case, we should be able to find on the moon and Mars and other places. You would other think... Planets. You would think. Yeah. Yeah. But the funny thing is, talk of star jelly, it's been around for a long time, actually. All these wild theories, but people have been making reference to it, I think, since the, like, the 1300s. First actual recorded reference to it was by John of Gaddiston, and he called it 
Stella Terra, which means star of the earth or earth star. He was a doctor and he described it as a, quote, certain mucilaginous substance lying upon the earth. And he thought it would be a good thing to use to treat abscesses. Again, I don't recommend it. (laughs) Mm. There was a Latin medical glossary in the 14th century that had an entry for what it called uligo. I hope I said that right. That it described as, quote, a certain fatty substance emitted from the earth that is commonly called a star which has fallen. And then a English Latin dictionary around 1440 had an entry for what it called, I think, I hope I say this right, stere slime, and it's slime with a Y, with a Latin equivalent given as a sub, which is a rendering of the Arabic ash shahub. And it also used the medieval Latin term for a falling or shooting star. Hmm. And then in Welsh, the stuff is referred to as puder. Oh, oh, puder. I'm I'm probably screwing this up badly. If there's any Welsh speakers listening right now, I'm sorry. Puder, sir, which means uh, rot from the stars. So people have been finding it and talking about it for yep. centuries. Although the funniest name for this thing. Uh, there's a slime mold that the fancy scientific word for it is enteridium hycoperdon. I hope I said that right. But Hycoperdon? Yeah. But in Veracruz, Mexico, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you might want to cover the kids' ears for this, mom and dad. Uh, the locals in Veracruz, Mexico call it caca de luna. <laughs> Do you know what that means, Mr. Anderson? I agree. The silence is killing us. You seem easily amused. Um, moon's feces. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there you go. <laughs> you learned a little bit of Spanish today on the Monster Island Fimfall. <laughs> uh, but I found a lot of different examples, a lot of the same ones and a lot of different sources of just instances where people find this stuff, not just the famous one that inspired the blob. I found some other ones. I'm not going to go through the entire list that I found on multiple sources, but I will share a few of the highlights with you. So there was one on November 11th, 1846. There was a luminous object that was said to be about four feet in diameter that fell at Lowville, New York, and it left behind a heap of foul-smelling luminous jelly that vanished quickly. This was from a Scientific American. So there's one there for you. Then August 11th, 1979, Sybil Christian of Frisco, Texas. Oh, maybe I should ask Mr. Darius R. Gold, one of our new higher-ups here on the island about this. But she reported discovering several purple blobs of goo on her front yard after the Perseid meteor shower. Hence, continuing the the Perseid meteor shower? The Perseid. Okay, excuse me. Thank you. It's better you than Jimmy. So, reporters did a follow-up investigation on this, and so did the director of the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History, and they found a battery reprocessing plant outside of town that was leaking caustic soda, which they used to clean impurities from lead 
in batteries and it created a purplish compound as a byproduct. Mm. Now, there was some skepticism <laughs> with this report because the compounds at the plant were solid and not blobs like what she was finding. Yeah. Although then some people try to say, yeah, but she tried to clear everything off of her lawn with a garden hose. So they're trying to say that the water mixed in and made them blobs. Right. Yep. And then in 2008, BBC Radio Scotland. Oh, I used to work with a guy who's half Scottish. Now he just freeloads on the island. <laughs> they asked their listeners to send in details about sightings of star jelly on their webpage and comment on what they thought it was. And then in just four months, they had 130 reported sightings from all over Britain. And 47 of them were from Scotland. Hmm. Now, here's so one is- of the weirdest ones. And I don't know if you remember this show, Eric, but do you remember a show called Unsolved Mysteries? Yes. This was yep. actually the subject of an episode. So, several times in 1994, a quote-unquote gelatinous rain fell in Oakville, Washington. Does this sound familiar? No, but I didn't see every episode of okay. Unsolved Mysteries. Okay. Uh, National Geographic covered it, and they made a video called Mystery Goo Rain, which actually okay. advanced a conspiracy theory using an interview with a microbiologist named Mike McDowell, who said he tested the substance and thinks that it was, are you ready for this, a, quote, matrix containing Pseudomonas fluorescens and the Enterobacter cloaca that could make people sick when they touched it. And he claimed that the sample went missing. And when he asked the management what happened to it, he was told, don't ask. Making mm. him think that it was manufactured by somebody. And that the town of Oakville was being used as a test site. So there you go. Like I said... This is the stuff of conspiracy theories. <laughs> yep. Whew. Yeah. And then in 2012, January, blue balls of jelly rained down on a man's garden in Dorset. Okay. But after they examined it, they it was turned out to be sodium polyacrylate granules, which is a super absorber polymer that has a lot of common uses. It was already in the ground. It was dehydrated and it gone unnoticed until it got soaked until it soaked up enough water from a hail shower, and then it just grew. Yeah. So some of them they've completely disproven as not even being star jelly. But here's the most recent one that I could find. It was in June of 2019 in Goachland County in Virginia. There was a, a couple that found five small piles of what looked like crushed ice, but it was gelatinous. Then they brought in an agricultural expert from Chesterfield County, and he took a look at it under a microscope, but he failed to find any evidence of a living organism. He concluded that it was just a man-made water-based polymer used in gardening as a soil replacement, kind of like the last one I talked about. Mm. But the blob is not the only place where you see stuff like this popping up in fiction. There have been poets that have made reference to it, which is just kind of funny to me. Yeah. Uh, so there was uh, Sir John Suckling in 1644. 
he wrote a poem with these lines. As he whose quicker eye doth trace a false star shot to a marked place, dues run apace, and thinking it to catch a jelly up, do snatch. There's other poets like Henry Moore, John Dryden, William Somerville, Walter Scott. They've all Mm -hmm. made reference to it in one form or another. There's also, have you, uh, there was a movie version of this actually pretty recently starring Nicolas Cage, but The Color Out of Space. Have you seen or read that? I don't think so. Yeah, it's an H.P. Lovecraft story. There's a strange substance that falls to the ground after a meteor shower. The 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers has alien spores that fall to the ground and they look like jelly. And then uh, there's a a movie called Creepshow. It's an anthology horror movie. And there's a segment in there about a guy who basically just you know, makes a bunch of plants. He lives out in the middle of nowhere. His name is Jordy Viril. He's played by Stephen King. It's a little bit like Star Jelly, kind of. Yeah. Oh, I mentioned Sir Walter Scott. Yeah, yeah. He mentioned it in his 1825 novel, The Talisman. And he wrote in that, And thou shalt only light on some foul jelly, which, in shooting through the horizon, has assumed for a moment an appearance of splendor. So there you go. You ever come across any star jelly, Eric? No, not that I can remember. Maybe that's why you don't remember. Could be. Mm, That's Mm. a little terrifying, isn't it? Yes. Perhaps there was silence around, and that's why I don't remember. Oh, the Doctor Who references are just abounding today, aren't they? (laughs) Exactly. All right, Eric, it's time to start wrapping things up here. But before we do that, I have a little bit of listener feedback that I want to go over. Specifically, I got some more comments from my friend Neil Reby, who's been on the show before. Dude is the king of YouTube comments. He's just leaving all kinds of them right now. I've been sharing a lot of them. So here's one that he left on episode 25, which was for Dogura the Space Monster, which seems weirdly appropriate to talk about after we just finished talking about Star Jelly. Have you seen Dogura? It sounds familiar. I may have, but yeah. I've seen a few movies that I have, don't remember the name. It has of, a so. giant Lovecraftian squid monster in it. Eats mm. carbon. So it goes after coal and diamonds. Does it sound familiar? Maybe I've heard of it more than I've seen it. Yeah, I'll show it to you sometime. So, Neil, or Neon Riley, as he goes by on YouTube, he wrote, I thought Dogra would have been a great opponent in the Heisei Mothra series. He eats coal, which is considered a polluting substance. That would dovetail nicely into the series' environmental theme. Plus, they are both airborne creatures, so you can have some great aerial battles. I also thought... If you can blend the music just right, it would be an interesting contrast to have the Elias sisters sing their song to boost Mothra's morale during the big fight and then segue into Dogra's bombastic theme as the scene switches from the Elias to the monsters. And then add a tornado whirlwind roar for Dogra's suction as it tries to suck Mothra into its maw. I think that's called Tuesday on Monster Island. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, then here's another one 
which he left on episode 28, which was Nick Hayden versus The Beast. The Beast. The Beast. The Beast. The Beast. The Beast. From 20,000 Fathoms. Such a great movie. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, he wrote, When I was a kid, I watched National Geographic on PBS, so it didn't bother me when 50s monster movies had those long opening narration scenes. To me, those scenes gave the movie a documentary-level authenticity because I associated them with the narration in National Geographic. Hmm. He also sent me a, a pretty long and involved series of messages on Facebook Messenger related to a recent episode, which I will share those at a future time. But he also left a comment here on a live stream that I did in remembrance of Akira Takarada, God rest his soul. He wrote, when I was a kid, any other kid who was a few years older than me, all the way up to the adults, snubbed Japanese monster movies as quote-unquote fake and stupid. Then when Star Wars came, the kids my age took the same attitude. This is fantastic that youngsters like you hold so much appreciation for these movies and the people who made them. For me, this is a sort of culture shock because I expect you to be older than me, not younger, because in the past I had to defer to old timers like Forrest Ackerman and his famous Monsters of Filmland magazine to find anyone who liked these movies as much as I do. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Neil, for the kind words. Yes. And that was an excellent live stream. I had my friends Danny DeManna and Elijah Thomas and Kaiju Kim on there. And we just basically spent a couple of hours just remembering the life and work of Akira Takarada. And very good. It was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Can't say that enough. Yes. But now, Eric. You didn't get to do this the last time you were here, but now you get to do the Patreon shoutouts. <laughs> Travis Alexander. Travis, 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 Travis. Michael Hamilton. Danny Damana. Eli Harris. Chris Cook. Bex. Bex. Damon Noise. The Cellcast. Hello, Cellcast. Ted Williams. And the wonderful and amazing Eric Anderson of Nerd Chapel. Oh, I Such know a that great guy. guy. I know that guy. He's crazy. Yeah. Tofu Fiore. I know you were being pretty quiet there, Eric, but was that not invigorating? Tofu Fury is one of the coolest names I have for any of these patrons. Yes. I know who you are, Tofu Fury, but you're always going to be Tofu Fury. Mm -hmm. Just saying. All righty, Eric. Got to finally do that on, uh, yourself. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you'll get to do it again the next time you come over we'll have to make arrangements for that yes and thank you for your patronage by the way it is much appreciated of course yes and you listeners the kaiju lovers you too can get perks like this starting at just three dollars a month by joining mifemax on patreon now 
Patreon. Uh-huh. Now, Eric, got to tell every, yes. you and everybody else what we have coming up the next couple of episodes. So we're getting back to our sub-series, Godzilla Redux, or Redo, however you want to say it. I like Redux, with one of your favorites, actually. Yes. King Kong versus Godzilla. Ah, one of my first Godzilla movies Yes, ever. and I will be bringing on YouTube personality... And, well, she's also an author, a poet, a musician, a Navy woman. She does a lot of things. And she's not even old yeah. enough to drink. Okay. Yeah. Alyssa Sharpentier, a.k.a. Alyssa Goji Geek on YouTube. All right. All right. And then we get back to Amerikaiju with... <laughs> The co-host on both of my spinoff podcasts, Michael Hamilton and Travis Alexander from Kaiju Weekly. And they're coming on to talk more Ray Harryhausen with me with uh, uh, 20 million miles to Earth. Okay, cool. Yes, Jimmy, I've heard you tell the story about seeing a herd of Emir on Venus at least 10 times. Wasn't it 12 times? <sighs> 12, you say? 12. Yeah. Maybe it was. I don't know. What was that, Jimmy? <laughs> yes, I know. They were extinct for a while until you fixed Venus. Fixed Venus. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen the war in space, Eric. It kind of blowed yeah. up. Apparently, he fixed it. That does not mean what I think it means. Exactly. Now we come to one of the most important segments of the show, Eric. Shameless self-promotion. I'll just put this out right here. I've already mentioned it a little bit. Listen to my spinoff podcast, Henshin Men, a podcast about the appreciation of Japanese superheroes and their high-flying and high-kicking adventures, which I co-host with Travis Alexander, and The Power Trip, a journey through the Power Rangers franchise, which I co-host with Michael Hamilton. Go do it now. Leave reviews. All that fun stuff. If you write reviews, they get read on the show, just like they do here. So leave reviews for all the things, especially five-star reviews. Anyway, done. Go, Eric. All right. Well, as has been mentioned, I started a little tiny thing called Nerd Chapel, where I go to comic book conventions and gaming conventions and anime cons and hang out and say, hey. I'm a Christian who likes the same cool hobbies you do, and I write at the intersection of the Christian faith and our favorite nerdy hobbies. So you can go to nerdchapel.com. You can find Nerdchapel on Instagram and Facebook and Patreon. Yeah, I always find all sorts of cool parallels between scripture and our fun stories that we love so much. Yep, and you better tell everybody about the books. Yes, the books, which is a major part of what I do at cons. Nathan and I have co-authored three books. That's three more than other people. Um, <laughs> sure, Jimmy, you're going to have at least three volumes for your memoir. Right. Okay. Sure, Jimmy. Yeah, so the 42 book series, 42, Discovering Faith Through Finn, and the new 42, God Terraforms All Things, and the fantastic 42, A Fellowship Facing Doom with Hope. They are 42-day devotionals that look at scripture and, and encourage you to build a relationship with Jesus Christ, but also find a lot of parallels and comparisons and contrasts from, again, science fiction and superheroes and kaiju and mm -hmm. anime and all was, sorts of really I was going to say, 
There is kaiju and toku stuff in there. Yes. Yes. In fact, in one of them, I write about Godzilla and Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, and how he is like the Apostle Paul. I know that sounds incredibly weird, but it makes sense if you read it. It does. That's also one I made into a video for Geek Devotions. Very cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Is great. And we had some uh, stuff from the Godzilla anime trilogy and from Power Rangers, actually, in the newest one. Yes. So there you go. Yep, more Kaiju and Toku for you. A good friend, Scott Bales, wrote one about the Green Ranger. Mm-hmm. Who I just met at a convention mm-hmm. recently. Good. Made a little trip back to my uh, stomping grounds in Indianapolis. Well, not Indianapolis specifically, but Indiana. And I got to meet the Green Ranger. So that was fun. Trying to get Tommy Oliver to come visit the island sometime. So, what was that? That would be cool. Mm -hmm. So, he was at a con I was at, but I didn't get to meet him. I was at my table all all the time, and by the time I made it over to his table, the line was gone, but he had a panel to go to, so. (laughs) I'll tell you about my visit with him a little bit later. Well, Eric, we're almost done here. Would you like to go see the goo, as my friends at Kaiju Weekly would say? Sure, I'll, I'll try scanning it with this thing I found by the blue box some more. Yes, good idea. Oh, is that right, Jimmy? You've been getting some complaints about our sound quality today? I bet it's our little gremlin mascots again, isn't it? We have been doing such a good job keeping them out of the equipment, but apparently they have been mucking around. A little bit again. I'm going to have to have a talk with Ultramite. He's not doing his job. I brought him here to keep Goji-kun and Brokong out of trouble. Oh, of course, Serena, that little magical girl, would be luring him away by batting her eyes there. You know, her big old anime eyes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, distracting Ultramite. No wonder Goji-kun and Brokong are causing trouble. (sighs) Anyway. Sorry about that, Eric. But with that, Jimmy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok. Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!
<sighs> Good Godzilla, what a day. The broadcast with Eric, curating some new films for The Vault. Who would have thought finding a complete set of uncut Ultraman Tiga was more difficult than keeping WHG3 sober? <laughs> Getting it was a big screw you from me to Johnny's. Japan's so-called best talent agency is run by a bunch of old tyrants. <laughs> hmm, looks like Eric is having a good time going sightseeing with Jess. <laughs> she just can't stop being a tour guide despite being in charge of tourism. What I need is dinner. What's in the fridge? Huh? What's this? Someone left an envelope on my fridge. A handwritten note? Who does this anymore? Besides me, I mean. It's in English, but the handwriting is a bit sloppy. Hmm. Let's see. Marchanson, this is Shinichi Ozaki. Huh? He's been missing for a while now. Are you telling me he snuck into my apartment to pin this letter to my fridge? Well, I hope he found my action figure collection amusing. Anyway... I'm AWOL because a mutant squad mate told me that he was ordered by Mr. Gold to scrape off some of the space goo caked on the KIJU studio after it returned from orbit. Hmm. Another mutant reported to me the next day when the blob arrived from Pennsylvania that when he went to check on the creature in its ice bucket, he noticed that the blob was a different shade of red and didn't consume the rat it was fed. Hmm. Blob is lethargic when cold, but it should have consumed its food. Mm-hmm. Another mutant saw an unscheduled helicopter collect passengers on the beach late one night and fly toward the beta site. Huh. He found a small patch of strange gelatin on the ground at the landing site. I had Dr. Dorif analyze it. Oh, boy. Which revealed it was a dead piece of the blob. Oh, boy. My reports to Captain Gordon about this are being blocked, and he's been too busy to contact directly. Whoever took the blob is hell-bent on keeping it secret. When you read this, I will have already gone to the beta site to retrieve the creature before it can harm anyone. I'm telling you this because I know you and Jimmy will deliver this letter to Captain Gordon. Don't trust electronic communication. I'm certain this is an inside job, but I don't know who's behind it. Be careful who you trust. Signed, Ozaki. Holy crap! This has to be winner! Now I know how Nick Totopoulos feels. WINTER!